Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I was teaching at Stanford. I went to my co-instructor and said, hey, should we take our class online? He looked at me. It was like a specialized class on something called artificial intelligence. We gave those students the exact same homework assignments and exams as we gave Stanford students. And then we stack ranked at the end and asked, who is better? Is it the Stanford students yeah. or the online students? It turned out the top 412 students were online and the single best Stanford student ranked number 413. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be positive. So the world feels, uh, you know, pretty dark right now. So I thought I'd bring on somebody who uh, who sees the bright side, who's concentrating on how the pandemic can change things for the better in amidst all of this terribleness. And he's actually trying to help those changes come to life and come to life quickly. This week's guest is none other than Sebastian Troon, who, if you don't know, is kind of a big deal out here. So his, his resume is a little ridiculous. He was a Stanford professor of artificial intelligence, computer science. He launched Google X, this secretive research lab that's been at Google now for years. He's the father of the self-driving car industry, having launched what is today known as Waymo. Back then it was known as Chauffeur out of Google. And so basically all of these off-the-wall ideas that were have been trickling out of Google over the years, at least in those early years, you know, beaming high-speed internet from hot air balloons and Google Glass and everything else, he was behind and had his hand in all of that. But eight or nine years ago, he left to work on something else, which is distance learning, basically university education, university degrees online. And he's the founder and chairman of Udacity, which has become one of the world's biggest online education companies. They are a unicorn, so with a billion dollars as of, I think, a couple years ago. So anyhow, he tells the story about its founding, which is really fascinating. And then the other thing he does is he runs Kitty Hawk, which is the flying car company bankrolled by Larry Page, the Google co-founder. And he has various other irons in the fire as well, of course. Anyhow, he's a very eloquent speaker. He's one of those rare people who actually has visions or a vision and then actually follows it up with actually trying to make those visions real. 
So we talk about what the coronavirus is doing to some of the things he's working on, like higher education, especially as universities go virtual, yet are, broadly speaking, not cutting tuition. So I think, personally, we are at the cusp of a massive change in just the cost, which is massive, and the structure of university education. We also uh, get into transport and how COVID has changed, both for better and worse, the landscape for flying cars, air taxis, whatever you want to call them, and kind of what the future looks like for that. We also touch briefly on, of course, autonomous cars, etc. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. It's a good one. It's a fun ride through uh, Sebastian's brain and why he's despite even having some personal loss, he's, he's ex- still excited about the future. So without further ado, I give you Sebastian Troon, founder of Udacity and CEO of Kitty Hawk. Enjoy. So I guess my first question is this, which is basic, because you have your hands in lots of different interesting pies. How are you feeling about the world? <laughs> and opportunity generally? I'm generally an optimist, even in challenging times uh, of COVID-19. I believe the world has just grown a whole bunch of closer together, even though it might not feel this way. We yeah. now confronted a problem that can only be solved worldwide, akin of global warming. I do believe that moments of crisis are accelerators. And why I very much commiserate this massive job loss we underwent. At the same time, there's new things coming up, possibly much faster than ever before. And I've been actually quite relieved that we didn't lose 3 million Americans in this crisis. I don't know what's the best place to start, but why don't we start with the move to virtual everything? Actually, this week I did a piece on what some investors are very excitedly calling the end of the social media ice age. How we have this whole new... (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So the whole idea that this crisis has created new ways of living, working, new worries, new anxieties, new needs in such a dramatic and rapid way. And some of that will go away as things kind of normalize or we get a vaccine or whatever, but some of this will be permanent behavior change. And thus, there is big opportunity here. And one of the things I've been thinking about is education. Because the CDC, I don't know if you saw, put out their regulations, their kind of guidelines for education going forward. And it's extraordinary. And this is, they're talking about elementary schools, primary schools. And you know, it's like, kids should sit six feet apart. You know, you should disinfect the playgrounds after use. All of these things that just on a practical basis, day in, day out, are it's just not going to work. It's just impossible. I'd love to get your kind of sense, just, you know, Udacity obviously isn't that, but it is in this broader world of online education. And when, especially when you think about universities and the whole California State University system, 500,000 students saying all classes will be virtual until December it does feel like this is a a moment for education. The uh, COVID-19 crisis is perhaps the turning moment for online education. Udacity, my company, started 10 years ago. We've always been in a world where 
online was seen as second class to in-person education, despite the fact that we were able to evolve education to really utilize the fact that it's online. But COVID put this all on steroids. Every college, every school overnight had to go online. And that means that we are playing with new ways of reaching students, of engaging students, of assessing students at a scale never happened before. That's like the the Galapagos of hyper-evolution for online education. So where do you see this going and how do you see it evolving? Because obviously, because we talked to a lot of companies in the past month or two months where it's like, well, you know, we have this idea and it was growing okay and we had a kind of dedicated group of followers and then all of a sudden, because of necessity, they became wildly popular or in demand. From where you guys sit, what does that look like on the ground on a practical level? especially what you're doing, which is kind of higher education, nano degrees. Udacity is a, um, a company that teaches jobs skills for tomorrow, futuristic job skills in the tech space. So you come to us because you want to be a software engineer or machine learning engineer, or maybe even just a digital marketer. And you want to pick up those skills in an affordable way in a short amount of time to find a better job. We specialize in this. So we derive our educational content from leading companies like Amazon and Google and, and many others. And then we package it so that the learner, you the learner, will mostly just do projects and you get one-on-one -on -one feedback on your projects. And when time is right to find a new job, we even help you prep for the interview and brush up your CV so that you can get the job you dream of. Now, in the history of education, the well-understood type education, higher education we know is like college education. And there's by and large three degrees, bachelor degree, master's degree, and PhD. And those degrees, they were already mentioned in the manuscript at the University of Vienna in 1329. So they've been around for a while. <laughs> what has changed since is that, for one, we live much, much longer than we used to in 1329. We live almost three times as long. And secondly, the world moves much faster than ever before. Not just in COVID times, even normal times, the rate of innovation has just exploded. And that means that there is a new educational demand, which is called as lifelong education. Education after your college degree. Like the 35, 40-year-old person who wants to be on top of things again and realize his college education is... 15 years ago is outdated. And that type of lifelong education is exactly where Udacity comes in. You can, and that's where online comes in because when you are 35, 40, you have a mortgage, you have a job, you have a, a, a growing family, you can't just take a year or two years off to get a master's degree. You want to be able to do on no. weekends and the evenings. And that's where online shines because now you can sit at home on a Saturday night and learn and train yourself and that's where online is almost mandatory, where a physical classroom would work. When you think about university and university education and just the way costs have gone and the amount of student debt and what kind of the value of the diploma that you get oftentimes, if it's not, especially if it's not a technical degree. Do you think this, I mean, to your earlier point about putting these changes on steroids, do you think this is, because it feels like the student debt problem, for example, has been just growing, this, this looming massive problem that keeps growing and growing in the background. 
Do you think this will be the, a kind of a tipping point? Because going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, California State Universities, half a million students being told, don't come to campus, and by the way, keep paying your tuition. It does feel just like that transaction looks increasingly tenuous or kind of vulnerable. One of the beauties of, of going online for any business is that your cost structure changes. We have courses that have been taken by 100,000 students. As a result, mm. we can invest in these curricula and still give them away in a very affordable way. So the typical Udacity non-degree graduate has spent $1,300 with us for the entire education. That in comparison to tuition at a college is really small. We did a study a few years ago on job placement and we found that 88% of job seeking graduates found the job of their dreams within the first six months of the job search. And compared to previous income, these are lifelong learners, their mm -hmm. pay went up by 24,500. So they gave us 1,300 tuition payment and they were able to pay themselves the tuition back just by the raise within three weeks time. If that model was the national model for education, there wouldn't be any college debt. But you, ta you taught at Stanford. Mm -hmm. I would say perhaps the majority of the value of university is actually going physically to university. And, and meeting and networking and having life experience and, and living on your own and all of that stuff. The vast majority of American college students are non-residential. They're actually working on the side to afford college. Stanford yeah. is a dream box. It is what we aspire <laughs> to think about, or Berkeley or Harvard, but an incredibly small sliver is even admitted to, to those great places. More than half our college students don't get their degree. That high? In this first six years, uh, more than half, absolutely yes. They walk away with twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 college debt, sometimes even $100,000, and no degree in the pocket. Imagine if you start your life with crushing debt, often on credit cards with high interest rates, and you want to build a family, and you can't. And you got some education, but it doesn't pay towards a job. Maybe we didn't get a degree, or you got a degree, say, in criminal justice or art history, which are areas where it's incredibly hard to land a job. That's just daunting. That's, I think, mm. where this innovation, this, this coronavirus crisis can help us. But it has to help us not just with going online. We have to change the cost structure. We have to reconcile that online has the opportunity to have a fundamentally different cost structure in hand. And I, I, can, I can prove it's possible. We did this. Udacity worked with Georgia Tech for the last seven years. We built an online master's degree in computer science that costs the student on average about $7,000 with the exact same degree on campus, with the exact same master's diploma, costs about $45,000. So we've been able to take this $45,000 campus experience and rebuild it online for the student for $7,000. And little secret, it's actually profitable. They're actually making money off it. Who is? Georgia Tech and Udacity. I was going to say, because why would Georgia Tech ever do that? Georgia Tech is an incredibly innovative entity. 
And you can think of universities as businesses uh, with a balance sheet, but they also have a mission. And mm -hmm. Georgia Tech sees it as their mission to make the world better and through education. So from their perspective, this uh, master's program today has roughly 10,000 active students. It's the biggest computer science master's program in the nation. The estimate it's going to supply this country with roughly 8% of computer science experts, 8% for one university. Think of that impact and think right. of what it does to people because the typical student in this program is actually not a college student, turns out. It's actually a little bit older. These are people, the average age of a student is 34 years. These are people who are in their career who understand what they need to learn to get better and take upon them the time and expenses to do it. And how long does it usually take them to complete? Very long, three, four years. And that's, right. that's the one big difference. If you're on campus, you have, you, you're a captive audience by, by any <laughs> interpretation of the word captive. Yeah. <laughs> you are stuck. So you go into this full time. The, the typical um, Georgia Tech master's student, the typical Udassi student has a job, has obligations, can spare maybe five to 10 hours a week. But you know what? Even I, I take those five hours. If I can take five hours of your time in a week, in half a year, I can very probably likely get you a promotion. And going back to the coronavirus and how it's kind of making people make these massive changes in their life. The other thing just around university is the social cachet. As you said, like online was seen as kind of like a second class. Do you see that changing or have you seen any signs of that, of being like, well, actually, let's flip this. Maybe it makes actually more sense and it's more effective and it's, and it's more efficient to do this online and the, the kind of the university, as a parent, you think my kids are going to grow up, they're going to get into a good college, they're going to go to college, I'm going to pay for that college, as opposed to, okay, you've graduated now, stay in your room or stay living here and do this online and it's just of a different has a different social cachet. I personally don't believe college should be replaced by online. And the reason is for many young men and women, it's a formative experience to be mm. in a social group of people outside their parents' home and learning the rules of social engagement. So many skills that are later necessary in the workplace arise from that experience. However, in terms of cachet of prestige, that's actually not a function of online versus campus. That is almost exclusively a function of exclusivity. I can prove this. When Udacity works very successfully with Fortune 500 companies, with many Fortune 500 companies, and for us to succeed, we step in and run an admissions process, not dissimilar from Stanford's and MIT's admission mm. process. We test candidates, we rank them, and we admit a small number. And then we work with their managers to create an expectation of completion. When we do all this, people compete. People proudly wear Udacity t-shirts to work. And as a result, our graduation rates are often as high as 80%, which for online is literally unheard of. So the, the, trick, the trick that universities play, the, the exclusivity game, the, the special thing to be admitted to Harvard or Yale is something that you can replicate in the online world. Why did you start this? But I started Udacity almost as an accident. I 
2011, I listened to, to Sal Khan of Khan Academy, who put all his math online. Yeah. And I was teaching at Stanford. I went to my co-instructor and said, hey, should we take our class online? He looked at me. It was like a specialized class on something called artificial intelligence, which at that time wasn't as hot as it is today. Hmm. And we expected maybe 500 students, maybe 1,000. Lo and behold, 160,000 students sign up across the world. Of those 160,000, 23,000 graduated. We gave those students the exact same homework assignments and exams as we gave Stanford students, like these well-selected, super sharp, graded students at Stanford, 200 mm. in total. And then we stack ranked at the end and asked, who is better? Is it the Stanford students yeah. or the online students? It turned out the top 412 students were online and the single best Stanford student ranked number 413. Really? That to me had this message that, wow, there is smart people outside Stanford. And it sounds so <laughs> trivial today. I'm sure it turns to a listener because I'm sure some of your listeners took that class. But as a Stanford professor, that was actually a new piece of information. Yeah. It was yeah. so inward looking as a university that we couldn't see this. So I started, I took it on me to talk to the students. I took to talk to hundreds of students and I found the type people that took and aced this class would have never been admitted to Stanford. There was a soldier in Afghanistan who was exfiltrating war fields in the middle of the night just to get his homework submitted in time. We had a single mother of two infant children. We had a person on dialysis. We had a person on his deathbed. He begged for an iPad so he could finish the class before he died. And that, to me, kind of opened the eyes towards opportunity. Like We think of the American education system as the best in the world. Mm. But... It's not reaching everybody. It's reaching people of a certain social, social demographics, ethnicity, in most cases, certain age group. If a person like myself, I'm in my 50s, wanted to become a Stanford student, no chance on earth. Right. There's this entire part of education that, that we believe we had to democratize. We had to democratize education. We had to get education to every person in the world. Our mantra quickly became, you can give a man or a woman a fish and then she has dinner for the night or you can teach him or her how to fish and then they have dinner for the rest of their lives. It felt like education was the single most important thing to do for the world. It felt if we could just figure this out, literally, when I hired early, early staff, I said, our, our goal is reached when the world's GDP is doubled. It mm. felt so important to bring education to everybody. So if I'm I'm one of your students back in 2010, you? for example. No, no. I'll say if I was. Yeah. If I was, and all, and I know what the tuition at Stanford is, and then I see my very smart professor giving away this this whole course for free to anyone who is interested online. How did that conversation go with the university? Or were they kind of like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, give this product, this exclusive product away for free. The university um, certainly was challenged. And <laughs> I remember I posted one email and we got us like 14,000 signups over the weekend, including a praise by a few blogs that Stanford finally had decided to abandon all tuition and go free for all. It's a bit of an overstatement. And so Monday morning at 8.15, I got my phone call from my dean asking me to visit him in person. And we talked about it. And yeah, 
the fun thing about like a place like Stanford is it's like herding cats. Like you try to get really smart professors, but one dimension of smartness is they just never do what they're being told. MIT yeah. knew this. Uh, we had a, a little fight and I just said, look, I'm going to do this. And I gave him a choice and say, look, we can put Stanford's name on it or just my name. Then he realized, yeah, look, it's an experiment. Let's do it. And we, we once again had a conversation when the final results came out. Stanford wasn't thrilled that the top 412 students were not at Stanford. But I felt it was a message to be heard. And it doesn't mm. diminish Stanford. Not at all. It's the opposite. It, it, it says how important high-quality education is for the world. And is there, just bringing it back to present day, one, has there been any, has there been a marked shift just in terms of incoming interest in Udacity from potential students post, you know, COVID really taking hold? And are there any plans to expand beyond kind of tech, you know, deep tech, machine learning, AI, et cetera? The uptake of Udacity has been enormous, mind-blowing to us. In fact, we have a hard time keeping up with the demand. And that's, I mean, I say this with a bit of a trepidation because by and large, I think businesses have suffered massively. Yeah. And there's a handful of businesses that do better as a result. And for better or worse, Udacity is doing much, much, much better. We're going to have a record quarter and record quarters to come. Obviously, with the horrible mass unemployment we're just engaging in, people now have time and mm. people have to spend their time and getting trained for your next job is a beautiful way to spend your time. It's much better than almost anything else. It's very opportune. So we find this. We also found to our positive surprise, we have a lot of contracts with corporations, Fortune 500 companies, and we expected that in time of crisis, the education budget is the first one to cut. But those mm. companies too realized that their staff now is sitting at home and some of them have a hard time doing something meaningful. So our engagement and contracting values with our corporate partners has also gone up. So for us, this is a watershed moment. But I, I think the biggest thing outstanding is whether we can establish this kind of education as a first-class citizens among colleges and universities. Mm. Whether we can make Udacity nanodegrees as prestigious and as meaningful for not just for our learners, but also for employers and for the society as a solid university we would be. And that's our chance. Because you're right, you're, I mean, like any startup, you're competing against Harvard, for example, who has centuries of brand recognition and history and legacy. That's true. We are competing against, um, some extent, against universities, although our customer segment is tends to be a little bit older, 25 yeah. plus, and it tends to be much more international than Harvard's, uh, at least Harvard online. It's not quite as strong as, as, as Harvard physical. Yeah. But at the same time, our trick to become good is to not go after college professors, but go after companies. So our instructors, they come from Facebook and from Google and, and, and leading companies. In the world we are in today, things are moving so fast that sometimes your average college professor isn't quite as bleeding edge as companies. <laughs> so, for example, one of the hottest things that happened in the last few years is deep learning. 
Yeah. And in deep learning, there's two big platforms, PyTorch and uh, TensorFlow, Google and uh, Facebook. And in both cases, the very day this, this library was made available to the public, we had a course on it. Right. So it took, it took literally the same event to build an educational curriculum and the publication itself. So you heard about the news and with the announcement heard, and by the way, Kaptogedasi take that class, built by, by Facebook, built by Google. That's something you can't find in college. Like in college, it just takes time. A professor typically is active for 35, 40 years. Yeah. Many professors teach the same class over and over again. I know that if you, if you join top colleges, you often learn programming language that are long dead for it. Yep. And that, that works really great in the Renaissance, like uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, whatever, <laughs> when, when not that much stuff was happening. It doesn't work as well in 2020. And is there any plan? Because I know that we've spoken to other companies like Lambda School and others. <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of technical degrees now that you can get online. Other things like nursing, education, languages, etc. Those are more difficult or... I don't know if they're more difficult. They are not available, it doesn't seem, at nearly the same variety, if at all. So I was just wondering if you have a sense of, you know, broadening it out. Is that in the plan for Udacity or do you see some kind of significant barriers to that for Udacity or more broadly just for education? I would say the reason why you see many companies begin with tech skills is uh, for two reasons or maybe three reasons. One is we mostly live in Silicon Valley. So we're surrounded by companies looking for tech workers. And then I agree, it's easier to teach programming online than it would be how to play baseball. That's going to be hard to train online only because it's such a physical engagement or how to be a violinist. Having said this, a good amount of surgical training now is online. You can actually uh, find surgical simulators that let you experience a surgery in a way that is incredibly hard to do in human cadavers. You can confront surgeons with much more experience and, and many more trial runs now in haptic interfaces. There's growing opportunity for online. As far as Udacity is concerned, we want to focus on jobs. Our promise is jobs. So we ask people, where are you looking for jobs? We just mm. launched a non-degree AI for healthcare. It's a fascinating nanodegree. Your very first project is to happens to be find pneumonia in chest X-rays, kind of exactly the way we diagnose COVID nineteen <laughs> as a coincidence. Wow. And you, you learn this with the latest tools in machine learning, so you can become an an expert physician in this course. And and we do this because we hear from hospitals all around the world, that there is a massive shortage of technologies inside hospitals that understand the medical field, but also can innovate on the technological side. To me, the fastest moving thing in the world is technology. It's just mm. what it is. And it has been for the last decades. In fact, for the last centuries in some sense. And as a result, I believe that field has a lot of opportunity. Right. Right. So in the near term, you're not going to be offering kind of nursing or medicine or things like this we won't do nursing for a long time to come that's correct right, right, right. even though nurses are in demand yeah indeed indeed i wonder if we could shift gears mm -hmm. to i know you don't like the term flying cars 
But I can't, I can't use EV toll because people will go cross-eyed. They don't understand what that means. So can we, I don't know what, what the uh, happy medium is. Air taxis? I, I'm super happy to talk flying cars if the audience uh, understands they have no wheels. <laughs> uh, fair enough. So on this podcast in the past year, we've had, we had Daniel Wigand at Lilium. Oh, yeah. Smart we had guy. Mark Moore at Uber Elevate. And... We've written extensively about this and the broad kind of themes I came in with is like, you know, inside the industry, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm and real belief that this is coming soon and coming much sooner than people realize. So to back where we very started the conversation where COVID in a way has been good for certain aspects of life or regulation or what have you. Has the pandemic in any way helped the trajectory of getting flying cars from, you know, prototypes that are really cool to look at to things that actually will be flying around cities or city to city or basically as a part of life? I would say the pandemic is probably a negative on the development of of flying cars. And the reason why is I think the pandemic will have a very lasting I mean, you couldn't call it positive, but business-wise, a negative impact on travel. Mm. I think people for the first time have realized that video conferencing can be a method of having very productive business meetings, even having very clear and deep emotions. Technology has matured to a point where it makes that possible. And now that we're forced to use it every day, I think that'll stay with us. So I, I don't see myself traveling to New York for a business meeting if I can do the same on Zoom and sell myself many hours. That same will be true for for city traffic as well. I mean, if you go to Manhattan today and realize that your noise level went down by 15 decibels and you can actually walk through the neighborhood, that's kind of amazing. You go yeah. to the Marine Headlands and there's no cars and you can just bike around. and That's such a liberating thing. Um, so so I, I don't think that from that perspective... COVID has been good for anybody who works on travel, including flying cars. Having said this, we are building a one-seater. Certainly, once we hit the market, there's still fear about getting infected. That's impossible inside our vehicles. And (laughs) I do generally believe that people want to be safer and faster and, and more environmentally friendly in their transportation needs, whether they go up or down. And I see enormous opportunity. Right. And so could you give a brief, because you started this, I think, the was it the year after you started Udacity? Is that right? Uh, it started about the same year. Right. This is one of these things. It's like science fiction in the background that people have been hearing about for a while. So just to give a, a brief sense of the kind of the arc of where it's where it started and where it's got to, both technically and regulatory, that would be very interesting. Yes, one of these, these things that when, when I tell people I work on call it flying cars or EV toll. I always get this kind of smile that says, I hope you have a backup opportunity. <laughs> or are you joking? And since I am one of the earliest people working on self-driving cars, in 2005, my Stanford team won what's called the DARPA Grand Challenge that kind of started the entire wave of self-driving cars. Did you launch Waymo at yeah. um, Google? I did Waymo. I, I did the I created and, and grew the self-driving car team at Google. At the time, it was called yeah. Chauffeur. 
and now it's known as Waymo. For the longest time, when I told people I work on self-driving cars, I got the same funny smile. Say, yeah. oh, that can't be real. Um, and then it, in, in self-driving cars, I think we're now used to the fact that they're kind of real, although they're still waiting. Uh, but in the flight area, no one is convinced yet. It's a complete new thought. But yeah. I can tell you what we have, what we've done. We, uh, that's uh, the origin. Origin is 2010-ish, and it starts literally with Larry Page, I would say one of the most prolific inventor of our ages, the Google co-founder. And he summons me to a dinner and says, Sebastian had figured it out. And I said, what do you figure out? I said, well, if you put batteries on aircraft and given distributed motors, you could build the equivalent of a super quiet helicopter that is super cheap and we don't need cars anymore. And picture myself now. I am at the time, obviously, still a professor at Stanford. I, I think of myself as smart. <laughs> <laughs> and sit there and have to digest this. So I started to digest this and tease these words apart. And over the next weeks and months that ensued, uh, I invited a whole bunch of experts, including Mark Moore, to talk to us, and Joe Ben Burbert. And did a lot of math to understand, is that, is that so? But what emerged is really interesting technology. It's something that's kind of super non-intuitive. You can, we have built now, we have built now an aircraft that lands and takes off vertically like a helicopter. Okay? That goes up to 180 miles per hour. That requires half as much energy per passenger mile as the most efficient electric car in the market today. That is super quiet. And it flies over you at a thousand feet. You can't hear it. It's a decibel level is 38 decibels, which is engineers speak for, you can't hear it. Yeah. And it has a range of a hundred miles on a single charge plus reserves. We've, we've demonstrated this. We built this, we've done thousands of, of sample flights. I'm not making this up. So let's put this into perspective. Let's say you live in a dense city and your average commute as the average American happens to be 52 minutes per day. So in Kabul, maybe 18 miles, 20 miles in total. And you do this in a car. Yeah. <laughs> what if with our invention, you could go five times as fast? So your commute time goes from 15 minutes to 10 minutes. Yep. What if you could do this at half the cost? Car-based transportation is the second biggest household expense in the United States, roughly $10,000 per household. And $10,000 is a lot of money for most households. What if I could do this much safer? Let's talk about safety. In, in traffic, we lose 35,000, 40,000 people every year. Mm -hmm. In aviation, when it comes to commercial aviation, the FAA has made the world so insanely safe. We tend to lose zero people a year in aviation in this country. And like, if you if you take the, the very tragic Boeing accidents that killed roughly two, two, 360 people in the last years and map this back to cars, that's what we killed in, in like less than an hour worldwide. Right. <clears throat> so so it's actually it's actually really really safe. Um, so what if you could make your transportation equally safe? Okay, and we make it so you're never ever going to be stuck in traffic again. And we make it 
we can get this this niceness of never being stuck in traffic because roads are very narrow. Like yeah. Highway 101 has four lanes. What if you could widen Highway 101 by vertically stacking on another four lanes? And another four lanes, so you have 12 lanes now. If we, if we extended Highway 101 by three vertical layers to 12 lanes, there would never be traffic. So you're talking about air lanes, basically? It's like airlines. It's just like a microscopic... Oh, sorry, air airlines. lanes. Air airlines. lanes is effectively what you're talking about, right? Or airways, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is something that, that I often get when I talk about it, that people say, well, Sebastian, you're taking all the carways traveling in the air. Wouldn't there be the same traffic jams? And the answer is no, because you have the, the third dimension. You have the vertical dimension. Yeah. yeah. So that's where you've got to. Yeah. So so you can, you can see it. I mean, um, we, we posted a video on our website. Half the press said, great computer animation. Beautiful, Sebastian. And we had to say, no, no, this is real. <laughs> uh, so we have the technical capability. We have, don't have a, we don't have a product yet. I mean, from to technical demonstrator to product is work. We are working daily with the FAA on on what's called type certification, which means the FAA thinks we are safe. But these are things that are surmountable. What's what's been done? It's been the, the proof it's possible that has been yeah. done. So what is the key hurdle now? It's just hard work. It's like. I think the biggest thing when it comes to flight is uh, the equivalent of fender bender in the sky might actually make you crash and die. So yeah. the safety bar is so much higher than if you build a scooter company. Yeah. And also, I mean, in his division, because I mean, it's funny when I moved here back from London three years ago, I moved with a very small child and now we have two small children mm-hmm. and we moved back here and I was like, well, I got to buy a car. It's kind of a pain, but a lot of people are like, well, do you have to buy a car? Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you uh, just get an Uber everywhere and there's all these car sharing services and it's like, well, but it was like kind of in the air that like, well, you know, car ownership is over. Did you buy a car? We, I did buy a car. Uh-huh, because you conceded. <laughs> <laughs> no, because Car seats. Yeah, that's true. Car seats. It's yeah, just like on a very practical level, like I'm not lugging around two 40-pound hunks of plastic and padding no, that anywhere makes sense. I go. And I think the uh, car sharing idea will take a hit due to COVID-19, which is regrettable Indeed. because a sharing economy ought to be an ownership economy, hands down. Like cars are being used maybe 3 to 4% of their lifetime. Indeed. Otherwise, they're just pieces of obstacles that take away valuable real estate. And from an economics perspective, buying something you don't use is just not a very good idea. Do you own a car? I own three cars, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I live in Los Altos Hills. uh, Getting an Uber here is tricky. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. But uh, uh, the reason I bring that up, it was like, it was kind of in the air of like, well, and like when you sit back and logically think about it, what you just said, that argument you just made makes total sense. But then there's the practicalities of like, well, I just want a car. It's like, I just want a university degree for, so that when I'm at a dinner party, people recognize when I say, oh, yeah, I went to UC Berkeley or Santa Barbara or whatever it may be. <laughs> so just extrapolating that with the the idea that you have airlines that will never get congested and that this once you get to mass production, will be as cheap, maybe even cheaper than 
I don't know exactly the economics. You can help me on that, but like current car ownership or car sharing, what have you, that all makes sense. But again, isn't there a huge societal piece of just like, ah, this is too weird or this is too new. I would, I would, I would just stretch everybody to take more of a historical perspective. So for example, picture yourself 150 years ago and we have this conversation obviously in person because there's no obviously internet <laughs> that you might fly in fact you might fly at 36,000 feet across the atlantic at nearly the speed of sound like you would declare me mentally retarded yes or let's say we have the conversation that i can talk to from the united states to southern australia and not at the speed of sound which would take several hours round time by the speed of light. I can talk at the speed of light and reach a person that I want to talk to in Australia. You would have declared me mentally retarded. I mean, there's, there's nothing that we could point to 150 years ago that would in any way make this plausible. Mm. In fact, many fundamental discoveries that led up to this. Or let's say 150 years ago, you tell you, when you have surgery, we're going to knock you out and you're going to be in sleep so you can't feel pain. Turns out anesthesia is younger than that. And it's an amazing thing. Uh, so is immunization. So is nitrogen fertilization. Nitrogen fertilization made agricultural land more than 20 times as fertile hmm. than before. And it led to us not having to work in the fields anymore and being able to pick up reading and writing and all these wonderful things we do today. If, if we take that view a little bit and, and think of this as wonder, like think of this as, as magic for the people who lived back then, why can't they be magic today? Why can't they wonder today? Why can't you dream? Why can't you dream that you could solve these big societal problems? Why can't you, for example, dream that you can cure all diseases or live twice as long or go into outer space or have flying cars? Right. It's just, it's an interesting time to kind of be so optimistic because it's, it's hard to see, <laughs> it's hard to see beyond the, the trauma right in front of our eyes. This is the very first pandemic in my life, obviously, and for all of us, for most of us. And it's a, it's sad. I mean, I, I've lost at least two friends in this, in this situation, but there's also so much hope. There's so much progress on vaccines. I think with all the suffering that we see, the Middle Ages in Europe are worse. Yeah. And, and the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, when the Black Plague hit us and, and killed a third of us, that's what, 500 years ago? If you scale this to the existence of humanity of 300,000 years, give or take, it's actually just a blink in the past. It just happened. Yeah. So I, I don't want to belittle the severity of the situation and the difficulties come with it. But also when we should, let's not forget what we've accomplished as a human race. Let's not forget where we are. Despite COVID-19, extreme poverty is disappearing. We had Bill Gates on this podcast two years ago, and he's spoken similar terms of just the, if you step back, all the kind of metrics, if you can use that word, of humanity are going in dramatically the right direction. But it's just, you know, it's never a straight line, obviously. Yeah, and I think that what, what makes it hard for people is a number of things. 
One is we generally fear the uncertain. Yeah. And every innovation, every innovator spells uncertainty. Like, what does it mean for me? Will I be better off or worse off? How can I participate? Like, flying cars. What if my neighbor has one and I don't? I want to hate it. We don't know. We, we want it, Most of us want certainty. We, we have this craving for certainty. I'm almost the opposite myself. I, I, I get bored with certainty and I feel a bit boring. Yeah. But, but that's, that's because I'm an optimist. And then the second thing that is in the way is that we get so stuck in the moment. Like, it's Monday morning and something bad happens and we already forgot that last week was great. And, and that's why, despite the pressing COVID situation, I allow myself a residual optimism because every, every thunderstorm passes. Yeah. So you, I think it was six months ago, you unveiled uh, Heaviside, which is this one seater. You've got a couple other uh, models. In terms of the company, this is still being funded by Larry, I presume. What are you trying to do just in terms of the blocking and tackling of running the company? Is it trying to figure out, I imagine supply chain is quite important. I imagine trying to, or is it just getting the FAA to approve these things before you then actually trying to start making them? It, it's all of the above. I mean, we are literally at the prototyping stage. We literally built the first 10 vehicles. Right. And there is no supply chain on the planet that could help us build a million. And mm. it's in a million economically. Working with the FAA is actually something very constructive that changes and alters our procedures and methods and our architecture so as to maximize safety. I give an example. Two years ago, we come to a shop where we deal with composites and plastics and you could see a dog running up and down. Now, it turns out you don't want to be in a plane where the core material could be infected with dog hair. This is an example. <laughs> so to so go from prototype, almost like an R&D shop to a product, you really got to get your yeah. procedures in place. And, and just if you ever go into an automotive company, go visit Tesla, which is the most advanced automotive company I've ever seen I've, in my life. I've, I've taken a tour of the floor. I've seen, yeah, I've seen it. That's where we have to be. And uh, Larry is still all in? Larry is all in. What people often don't know about him, because it's generally very private, but he's a, he's a first-class inventor. I've often called mm. him Thomas Edison of our time. He's not just in financially, he's in intellectually. He, he and I mm. spent a lot of time. And honestly, there's very few people have taught me as much as Larry Page has taught me in my life. So just last question. You're obviously doing, working on some very big things. Here we are 2020 in the middle of a pandemic and we're thinking about the future. Is there something else that you're thinking about or that has come across your radar where you're like, here's another big idea that whose time is coming or is something that you're really excited about? Oh my God, where shall I start? I mean, <laughs> honestly, almost everything in life sucks at some level and can be improved. Um, I'm very glad to see video conferencing making so much progress because for a long time I believed video conferencing would be the solution to many, many things that we do. Including the commute. That One of my enthusiastic interests, which I'm not doing much about today, is to heal illnesses like cancer. There's a whole bunch of medical life-threatening conditions, stroke, heart attack, 
cancer, aneurysm, many others, where the onset of the disease is non-symptomatic. Mm. And our method of saying, I'm only going to get my di diagnosis when I feel something yeah. puts a life in jeopardy. I can say this because I, my family is very cancer-stricken. My sister mm. died two years ago of cancer. My mother died at age 49 of cancer. My brother had a huge lung cancer, survived. My father had face, uh, facial skin cancer. So I give an example of, of, of how we could go after this. A few years back, I did work on skin cancer where we trained an artificial intelligence on a mobile phone to diagnose skin cancer. And we found that with the appropriate machine learning that you can learn at Udacity, you can actually make a phone that can find skin cancer as accurately as the best Stanford level board certified mm. dermatologist. And that gave some a weapon in the hand of everybody. Now everybody in the world can become as good in finding skin cancer as these super well-paid, super rare, highly qualified human dermatologists. Is that app in the world? We didn't put out yet. We're still working on it. But think of this as like cancers in general, uh, when they're being detected early for most cancers, you can, in most cases you can cure them. Not all, yeah. but in most cases. It's the, the pancreatic cancer is so dangerous because your very first symptom is a headache. And when that pancreatic cancer made all the way to your brain, there's nothing, nothing left to do. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you found it when it was really small, like the slice of a fingernail, you could probably remove it safely surgically. So I think there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. People are able to predict strokes by looking into people's retinas. People can predict congestive heart failure by looking at the weight of your, of your legs. I recently heard a doctor say that uh, the resting heartbeat is a phenomenally great indicator of a flu and possibly of COVID-19 and silent hypoxia. There's, I think there's an entire set of things we could build where, the, where your home would diagnose you all the time that could really save lives. So that's my, my one hobby. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Sebastian for taking the time to Zoom. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. It certainly made me feel a little bit better about the world. Um, I mean, I know obviously some of this is still quite theoretical, but hopefully we'll come out of this like we did, you know, kind of after we did of World War II, just like a horrendous thing for humanity, but also a great source of art, culture, technology, etc. That's the kind of obviously the very positive spin on this, but uh, I think that also has some validity to it. So with that, I will leave you for the weekend. Please stay safe. Please take a moment, give a rating and review to the podcast. It really does help other people find it. Um, it helps me keep doing it. And of course, subscribe to thetimes.co.uk. It's cheap. Newspapers need all the help we can get right now. And it keeps me in a job, most importantly, just on a very selfish level. Anyhow, thank you again for listening. Have a great weekend. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.